Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, music is a part of our everyday life here in the province. From folk festivals to kitchen parties or listening to the radio on the way to work, music touches all of our lives every day. I think that we all know inherently that music makes us feel better. It can change our moods and it's often the soundtrack to our favorite memories. But can it actually make us healthier? Well, here to tell us more are two special guests on today's show. First, we talk with Dr. Ben Zendel, who studies the impact of music on the brain and how picking up a guitar or playing the drums may actually ward off cognitive decline and even certain diseases of the brain later on in life. After we talk with him and learn the science behind how our brain works, we're going to have a chat with the one and only Alan Doyle. We'll chat about how music shaped his life and what he sees people get from music when he and others perform, as well as the benefits for health he sees in himself. He also shares how he and two friends began the Dollar a Day Foundation that provides charitable donations to mental health organizations that are doing great work, but might just need that financial boost to make more of a difference. So without further ado, let's learn what music can do for you. Dr. Zendel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We're talking a lot about medicine and music and health. You know, what's your area of research? So I study music in the brain. I study aging. Um, I study audio processing and, and sort of related issues. And so it all started really with an interest I had in music and an interest I had in aging. And we know hearing gets worse as we get older. I, hearing difficulties are pretty much one of the most common health-related issues we have in, in, in older adults. And there's now evidence showing that, that these hearing issues actually can lead to other things things that are potentially more serious. So, you know, not being able to hear leads to things like social isolation. You can't hear what people are saying. You can't have social interactions with them. That's been shown to lead to things like depression. And there's even some work now that shows that early hearing loss in sort of late middle age can actually predict cognitive decline when you're older. So finding ways to improve hearing as we get older really is of critical importance because it might have this sort of butterfly cascading effect on other aspects of health that people are very worried about, particularly cognition. Everybody doesn't want to, you know, people expect their bodies to age a little bit, but people want to keep their mental capacities as they age. That's sort of a real important issue for many people. Well, that's a, it's a big issue for here in Newfoundland. We have an aging population. Um, what are some of the stats when it comes to our population and aging? So Newfoundland is one of the older provinces. Uh, I think in, across Canada, about 18% of people are over the age of 65. In Newfoundland, we're closer to 23, 24%. So we're higher than the Canadian population. One of the, the, the bigger things is, is what's happening over the next 30 or 40 years. And, and projections produced by the Newfoundland government suggest that our population age 0 to 70 is not going to change all that much in the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, our population age 70 plus is going to grow dramatically. Uh, for example, we expect right now in Newfoundland is about 12,000 people aged 80 to 85. By 2040, we expect 27,000 people to be uh, aged 80 to 85. So we're going to be older as a population. Wow. So you use music to see how the brain works and how it responds. Can you explain how that, how you go about measuring that in the lab? Sure. So there's two things that I really look at with music in the brain. Um, the first is, is how the brain processes music. So music is one of these universal human activities, right? Like language, speech, things like that. Uh, and, you know, every known human culture uh, throughout history has engaged in some sort of musical activity. So it's one of these universals. So one of the things we're looking at is just mechanisms of how we process music. Why, why do humans have music and no other animals have music? So understanding what the brain does when it processes music. A second line of work is looking at how music experiences, music training, changes the brain. Uh, over time. 
so those, yeah, those are the two the two main lines of work that, that we uh, we look at in the lab. Right, and you think about Newfoundland; it's part of our culture here. So, is that one of the reasons why Newfoundland is such an interesting place to study? Absolutely, no. That was that was one of the reasons that brought me here to Memorial and to Newfoundland as a province. Uh, I, there's there's a long, rich musical culture uh, in the province, and actually, one of the first studies we looked at was comparing people who have done formal training. You know, well, conservatory, Suzuki, things like that, to people who have done no formal training but are still quite great at, at musical, at, at playing an instrument. And we had you know, no shortage of, of people in both groups. And we found that there was actually some differences in sort of how the, that type of training affects the brain. So what, so what are some of the findings you're, you're seeing? You're seeing that people that are exposed to music throughout their lives or are formally trained in music actually have a different function when it comes to the way their brain works later on in life? That's right. So we've found now there's two sort of types of studies that have been done in this area. One looks at people who became musicians themselves, and then we can compare them to people who chose not to become, become musicians, right? And we can look at that over time. And what you generally find in those studies is that people who've chosen to take music lessons have higher cognitive abilities as they age and better hearing abilities as they age. And those better hearing abilities actually come from cognitive processing, not so much the ear itself, right? Because if we think of the ear, the ear is made up of these little hair cells and the hair cells move to sound and they send a signal to the brain. But when you think about hearing in, let's say, a bar or a pub or a restaurant, all that sound reaches those hair cells at the same time and your brain has to figure out who's your friend's voice, who's the people at the table next to you, you know, what's the, what's the music playing, what are those, you know, what's that beer tap for and the glasses clinking and things like that. And so that's a, a cognitive problem, not a, an, ear, an ear problem per se. And what we find is that older musicians do better at solving that problem. And that leads to a, a better ability to understand speech when there's loud background noise. And if you ask most older adults who have some hearing issues, that's the biggest problem is, is hearing when there's background noise, when you're driving in a car and there's road noise, when you're at a pub and there's lots of people talking. Uh, that's the sort of real, the real audio issue. So, so the musical training provides, seems to provide some benefit. Now, the problem with those studies is that people who choose to become musicians might have better hearing to begin with. And that makes a lot of sense, right? If you're a little kid sitting at a piano and you're, you're, you know, you're playing and your teacher says you've hit the wrong note and you say, yeah, I heard that, I'm gonna fix it. Uh, you go on, you keep playing piano compared to another kid who says you played the wrong note and the teacher says, you know, the kid looks at their fingers, I, don't, I can't tell, it sounds, sounds fine to me. That kid is way more likely to give up playing piano. And so these studies may have really selected for people who just happen to have better hearing to begin with. Right. Um, so what's emerging now, and these are much harder studies to conduct, are randomized control studies. And they're run kind of the way drug trials are run, right? You, you give one group of people a, a drug, you give another group of people a, a fake drug, and then you have a no contact group to just uh, as a comparison to see what happens over time. And so now there are studies that are giving people music lessons, comparing them to some other task that we don't expect to improve auditory abilities. So for example, I did a study uh, that was just published a few years ago where we, we had people play video games mm -hmm. for the same amount of time, learn to play video games. And it's, a cha it's just as cognitively challenging, but to play a video game, you don't need to have particularly good hearing. Um, you need to have, uh, you get good visual spatial processing. Um, but music, you need to have better hearing. And what we found was actually the six months of music training improved people's ability to understand speech and noise compared to this group that played video games compared to another group that just did nothing over the course of six months. And so that those types of studies um, are now providing pretty good evidence that musical training can be used as a form of, let's say, medicine to uh, it, 
maybe prevent hearing loss as you get older. That's amazing. And that's, I've heard that saying before that, you know, music is medicine. I've heard exercise is medicine from my background, but like, how can this be used for people uh, in life later on or maybe early to prevent things from happening in the future? I mean, it's, it's a perfect example of, of it's, it's likely preventative, right? We see music as some people engage in constantly. And it's, it's a lifestyle choice that we're seeing along with exercise that can, sort of, that can preserve physical and mental health uh, as we age. And the more people generally engage in challenging tasks as they age, uh, the better preserved their cognitive function seems to be. Uh, and there's lots of evidence around this, but it's really about sort of challenging yourself and, and, and pushing yourself. And so learning a new instrument, for example, is very challenging. If you've never touched a piano before and you're 65 years old and you sit down for the first time, it's hard. Yeah. And even just to play a simple song like Mary Had a Little Lamb or something, right, is challenging if you've never touched a piano before at that age. And, and so by doing something new, novel, that, you know, keeps the brain active, keeps it, it, it learning and, and, um, and performing new neural connections, that seems to have some generalizability to other domains. Now, that's a big controversy in the field, sort of how far out this generalizes. Um, but there does seem to be with music pretty consistent reports of benefits to hearing abilities, and there's some evidence that it also benefits cognitive abilities as well. We're talking with Dr. Ben Zendel and learning about how playing music can help our brain health. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Ben Zendel and learning about how playing music can help our brain health. Let's check it out. If we're to look at the brain, what parts of the brain work? So the ear is a sensor and it sends those signals somewhere inside of our brain. How does that work from the neural perspective? So there's a, there's a, a long pathway because processing sound is a complicated task, right? All this that we talked about already, all the sound reaches our ear at the same time and the brain has to organize it into what we call an auditory scene, right? The same way if I'm sitting in a room and I'm looking at you and there's other stuff in the background right now, my eyes form a visual scene and I separate you from the background. Our ears do the same thing. When I hear somebody talking, I separate their voice from other noises and I create this, this, this audio scene. And it's done in a series of, of stages, right? The first thing we have to do is organize what frequencies go together, figure out how to group them, then how do we follow them over time? And so this goes up through structures in the brainstem. Uh, it all reaches the, the brain in a, a center called the auditory cortex uh, near what's called the, the temporal lobe. Uh, in the brain. And from there, it what happens in the brain sort of depends on what you're viewing. And sound is processed in multiple streams. It, it, it's processed by its acoustic functions. It's also processed by uh, in the motor system, amazingly, that's been tied to rhythm perception and things mm -hmm. like that. So it's really this sort of wide-reaching stimulus that, that activates different brain regions everywhere, right? And we can think of music as being, you know, rhythm leads to motor systems. You know, the song you heard on the last day of high school has you know, memories associated with it that, that never seem to go away, right? You hear everybody has those special songs, maybe your first kiss or your last day of high school, things like that. And every time you hear that song, you're taken right back to that, that location. And so there, it's, it, it's uh, related to memory. Um, you know, you can engage a piece, you go sit and listen to some complicated Mozart or Beethoven music, and you listen to sort of all the interactions of sounds It's a really just complicated cognitive tasks to sort of hear all the different pieces and how they relate to each other. So music is a real ideal stimulus from that perspective that it, it, depending on what you're doing with it, it can engage large portions of the brain. 
Okay. Question for you on this then. Does the type of music make a difference? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the key really is, is engagement. Um, there's certainly some specificity we've seen with training. So I had a, a participant in one study. Um, one of the hearing tests we do is this a test called gap detection. And what that means basically is we try and figure out what's the smallest silent sound you would hear in a tone, right? So you hear like a beep, and we put a little break in it, so beep, beep, beep. And we make that really small using computers. I can't do it with my mouth, like to the point of uh, where we're, we got to the point, actually, we just take one waveform out. So we edit the sound and just take one little, one little waveform out of the clip. And usually people can't hear that, right? Our, our, our brains sort of average across that, just make it some, some error. But this guy could reliably do it. He beat the test over and over again. Basically, and the test sort of is designed to end once it sort of figures out your threshold. But if we can't find a threshold, this goes on forever. So I had to stop it. And I asked him why. He said, well, I'm a line drummer. He played the marching bands. And I said, well, okay, explain. He says, well, I play the snare drum. And what you're trained to do is to block out everybody else's snares because if they make, if somebody hits off by just, you know, a millisecond, it can throw the whole line out of rhythm. The person next to them adjusts, everybody starts adjusting, and then suddenly the snares are all out of time with each other. So you're trained to ignore those tiny, tiny gaps and pay close attention to your internal timing system. And so because he was trained on that, that ability specifically, he that auditory ability got really, really good. Um, so there's certainly some specificity with, with training, but I think the general uh, benefits seem to be across genres. When we test people, we're not limited to people who have studied classical music, folk music, rock music, jazz music. Um, we generally, you know, we treat training music as, as music. Okay, so that's listening to music for one thing, perceiving music. What happens if you're that musician that's playing music at the same time, so they're adding a motor function in with the auditory. Is there extra benefit to that? Yeah, so generally the music listening is, there's, there's not actually huge benefits known to just music listening. Um, what the, the research is now showing is it's really about multimodality with the, these neuroplastic benefits that we're seeing. It's about engaging uh, multiple systems. And there was a series of studies done about 10 years ago now um, that actually specifically compared that as they, they had people learn to play a little piano melody and then had people listen to the people learning to play a piano melody. And so the people listening, they their task was to listen to these people who never touched a piano before, and every time they heard a mistake, press a button. So they're listening to the exact same thing, they're engaging it, right? They're listening for errors. And but the other group is learning to play, and every time they made a mistake, the uh, teacher would correct them and they'd fix it and get better and better. And then they looked at hearing abilities before and after. So before the groups were matching their hearing abilities, afterwards there was some brain responses that we could measure that were enhanced in the group, only the group that played piano, not the group that listened to errors. So it really seems to be about engaging the motor system and, and doing the music and not so much just listening. Mm. Um, and, and that was what we found also in a study we published a few years ago about uh, musical training in older adults. Again, when we looked at the results, we started seeing changes to motor areas yeah. and not to auditory areas, but the benefit was to auditory processing, not to motor processing. And so we, we sort of did some digging. And as it turns out, when we're listening to speech, for example, there's two major pathways the speech stimulus follows in your brain. The first is the brain figures out, tries to process the acoustic information. It's okay, you know, how are these frequencies related to each other? What sounds, what is the speech? The second, though, takes the sound and then tries to mimic how you would produce that sound. So it engages how we move the muscles in your larynx and your tongue and your lips to make these sounds. 
And when we looked closely at, at the benefits we saw from musical training, it was those regions where we saw the benefit. And as it turns out, other research has shown that that, that system is actually more important for understanding speech when there's loud background noise compared to the acoustic um, pathway. So that means that if we're singing along to our favorite tune <laughs> or playing air guitar, we're maybe getting something. So Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's, the, the stuff with like the, the thing with the motors is very precise, right? You yes. hear a wrong note, and the same action gives you the wrong note, and then you change it and you get the right note. But when you think about that, what you're doing really is learning to pair sound to motor movements. Yes. Right? And so that system, like strengthening that connection, you then strengthen the system that then interprets speech sounds as a motor response. Mm -hmm. And it makes it easier to understand speech when there's background noise. So as we're learning, your favorite album doesn't just sound good, it may also be good for your mental health. According to the new report from the Global Council on Brain Health called Music on Our Minds, there's a link that shows the positive effects music has on our emotional well-being, including improving mood, decreasing anxiety, and managing stress. As the report details, that impact starts in the brain, where music activates many regions, including those associated with emotion and memory. The music that was played at your wedding or the religious service or even at the concert you attended or a dance you were at, well, that remains preserved in those neural pathways that connect music with positive feelings. Research shows that music can have a beneficial effect on brain chemicals such as dopamine, which is linked to feelings of pleasure, and oxytocin, the so-called love hormone, and that there's even evidence that music can lower levels of the stress hormone called cortisol. This report included findings from the 2020 AARP Music and Brain Health Study, which represented 3,185 adults and found that listening to music, whether it was in the background, by focused listening to recordings, or at musical performance, had small positive impacts on mental well-being, depression, and anxiety. The tips that came out of the report encourage people to explore technology that can enable you to listen to music across multiple devices, such as your phone or television. Try different music apps that'll suggest new music you might enjoy based on algorithms that identify music similar to your current favorite selections. Enjoy listening to familiar music that comforts you and evokes positive memories and associations. And if you're feeling unhappy, try listening to or even making music to improve your mood and relieve these feelings of depression. The last thing they suggest is to make music yourself, as Dr. Zendel told us. Making music includes singing and playing an instrument. Learning to play a musical instrument can offer a sense of mastery and self-esteem while enhancing these brain activities that we talked about. These are just a few tips of how you can add music into your life and what benefits they may have for your physical and mental health. So the takeaway here for, for Newfoundland in general is we are surrounded by music. Uh, I was at get-togethers before where people aren't musicians, but they pass the guitar around and everybody can play and sing. And what's sort of the, the sort of takeaway message for people when it comes to playing and, and, and getting involved in music? I think everybody can do it. I mean, I think that, that, that everybody should be involved in music and our, our, you know, our culture has evolved in such a way where, where you know, we view differences between musicians and non-musicians, right? That musical, music is a skill that people have and you either have it or don't have it. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that music is for everybody, that everybody can be a musician. Not everybody's going to be a prodigy. Not everybody's going to be Mozart, Beethoven, whoever. But everybody can engage music in a way that's meaningful for them. And it's, it's a cultural activity, right? Singing songs together. Everybody can tap their leg along with the song or clap or play the spoons or sing along or something or dance. Um, and these things are good. 
that engaging in music is, is good for you. It's, it certainly has benefits for the brain to learn it, learning songs, learning how to play, things like that. It's also a social activity. I've started a new project now on choir singing, for example, and they're looking at psychosocial benefits. And there's now showing that, in, that joining a community choir not only has some cognitive and auditory benefits, but also benefits your well-being, your social well-being. And I found out, I was shocked, there's more people in Canada in community choirs than in hockey, huh. which is I thought was just an amazing thing when That's I found cool. that out. Well, community is one thing that we have here, and music is another thing we have here. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. That was Dr. Ben Zendel, brain and music researcher from Memorial University. When we return, we'll talk with singer, songwriter, and Newfoundland music legend, Alan Doyle, about his work in mental health advocacy and what health benefits he thinks music provides. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. To learn more about how music benefits our health, I met up with singer-songwriter Alan Doyle. He talked about what music means to us here in the province and the advocacy work he does with his Dollar a Day Foundation. As he said in his lyrics of the tune, Somewhere in a Song, and that tune that they performed gave them shelter from the storm. Let's learn what he meant when he wrote that lyric. Okay, to learn more about music and its effect on our culture here in Newfoundland and Labrador, I'm here with Alan Doyle. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Nice yeah, to good to you see again. you. Yeah, good to see Enjoy. you too. What a day we got for it. It's gorgeous, isn't it? I mean, we're down in Kitty Vitty right now. This is a little bit like where you grew up in Petty Harbor. Very similar, yeah. Uh, Kitty Vitty and the Battery are a couple of places in the city of St. John's that are, uh, that are similar to, you know, the small fishing towns like where I'm from in Petty Harbor or in, uh, you know, any of the other ones down the southern shore. But these places would have been kind of insular in a way, I suppose, years ago, that the, you know, the 40 or 50 houses that would have been in, in Kitty Vitty would have been, probably felt quite separate from St. John's at one point, you know what I mean, from, right. from downtown, and you know, because yeah. this would have been further away, oddly right. enough, you know, and likely the battery as well, you know, but yeah, so they, yeah, they are very similar, and they're, they're places that, you know, they kind of make sense to me, you know, uh, in that, uh, in a way that places like Calgary don't make sense mm -hmm. to me, where, mm -hmm. A neighborhood is some imaginary line. They have a harbor yeah. and everything goes up from that, you know, and that's when I'm in like landlocked towns, I get lost <laughs> way easier than, you know, I, I find, I find harbor towns, I don't know, this makes sense to me in a way that yeah. landlocked ones don't. Right. So when you grow up in a town like this, that is such a small community, music has to be part of that. So did you decide to become a musician or did you just like sort of fall into it naturally? Oh, completely naturally for me. I like, I was born into the Doyle family, the only, in a town of, completely based on the fishery. I'm born into the only family that are not occupied by fishermen. And <laughs> my, my, my grandfather and my great uncles all ran the, the hydroelectric plant at Petty Harbor. So a lot of my uncles worked for Newfoundland Labrador Hydro or what have you. And, uh, and, and my uncles were the band, you know? Right. They were, and they played for the weddings and the funerals and the dances. And, and my mom came to Petty Harbor from Airstown and she was to, looked after the choir. Right. And all that stuff. So it was just, uh, for me, music was kind of everywhere and incidental. And I really have kind of no memory of learning how to play guitar. I only remember learning that not everybody had one, you know? Right. And I thought that that was weird. Well, I was going to say that, that I was at a concert one time in Donovan Woods, who I think was a buddy of yours, yeah. actually said that Newfoundland is the one place where you don't have to get one for Christmas. You get it from yeah. your aunt and uncle or from the side of the couch. That's right. Like, it's just, if you grow up in a place where music is incidental like that, it's, um, it, it just makes everything easier and of course less obvious because it just happens organically and not uh, 
and not in any way, uh, you know, formalized or whatever, yeah. you know? And like, I never, I really had music lessons in any fashion or. Right. Like it's, and of course that's combined with the natural Newfoundland way of the fact that we have songs. Yeah, right. You know, and not many, not many places have as many songs that everybody knows as us. Yeah. The way I like to describe it in simplest terms is, you know, for most people, you know, they have a happy birthday or something and maybe Silent Night as the songs that occupy the, the part of their brain that they never learned, you know, like they have no memory of learning uh, Silent Night or Happy Birthday. But yeah. for most Newfoundlanders, we have 25. Yeah, right, right. That we, we just know for yeah. some reason. Like, no, I don't know if anyone knows, can remember learning Eyes the Bye. Can you remember learning that? I don't no, remember no, looking no, at it in no, a book. No, I know, and the thing is that when you go somewhere and people do know the songs and you can tell right away if somebody's not from there because they, they're, they're not engaging right away in, this, in the song because it just yeah. is part of what we do. It was a great lesson for me traveling because I thought everywhere had that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, the Maritimes has it, but not all the rest. Of yeah, not in the same way. Like, and, and even even in Nova Scotia, for example, which was an incredible instrumental culture mm -hmm. and fiddles and, and incredible, you know, uh, dance culture. Even they, they don't have songs like we got songs. Yeah, right, right. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Well, let's go Keep inside going. and we'll, right. we'll have a chat out back. All right. All right, so you talk about how you grew up and being exposed to music, but do you remember the first time you ever performed? Oh, yeah. Do you? Uh, yeah. Most likely, well, I don't know, in my living room or kitchen or something, you know, for my aunts and stuff, which I learned very early in my young life as a nine or 10 year old that, you know, when mom wanted to go to bed, 10 o'clock, if you saved like that John Denver song, for example, my aunt Betty, she would definitely, that would buy you 10 extra minutes if you right. sang, you know. And then I learned as over those years went down that if I planned my set to start at 10, for the various songs my various aunts would like. I could buy till 11.30 or 12 o'clock. Right. You know, if I, and if I was really smart, I'd save leaving on a jet plane till around midnight. And then, it, you know, and it was, I know it sounds silly, but it's actually truer than you might imagine that like at a very young age, I was aware that singing a few songs <laughs> buys you a longer leash than most people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Almost unfairly in a way. But, but, I, but yeah, so, but I think one of the first times I would have performed would have been, uh, me and my brother Bernie, like on one of the Christmas concerts, right. and we would have sang like some Simon and Garfunkel song or something. Yeah. And, and oddly enough, I wasn't, and you know, people think I'm being immodest or whatever when I say this, but it's like, I wasn't the singer. Yeah. I was like the backup singer and the guitar player. Right. I wasn't the singer until like the second year I started playing right. solo gigs in St. John's. Like I, I was always the other guy and, and I'm still, sadly to say, uh, the worst singer in my family. <laughs> I know Bernie. Yeah. And when I met him, I was like, incredible. Oh, you must be Alan's brother because your yeah. voices are identical. Yeah, he's an yeah. incredible singer and my dad is amazing and my, they're all great. And like, yeah. I'm the only one foolish enough to do it for a living. That's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, about that, like when you're, when you're performing, there's, there's got to be some benefits to it for the way you feel yeah. and what it does for you. But also like we're talking about music and the impact on people. Like what do you think it does for the audience when they're there besides getting sore calves the next day, jumping around all night? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the most practical thing is, is it's, you know, from, from an audience perspective, at least I'd like to think so anyway, is that it's, a, it's an escape, right? And it's, a, and it's a shared experience that's an escape. So yeah. it's like you're not escaping by yourself. You're getting lost together, as Blue Rodeo would say. And like, so you have this sort of shared uh, experience that's if you, if, you know, the guy on stage does it right, will make you laugh and make you cry and make you sing along and, and make you feel all the feels as the, you know, as they say these days. And I think that in a time when 
you know, entertainment has been changing so quickly in the last three to three decades, what have you, and the choices that people have, you know, to entertain themselves at home or whatever. Uh, it's still amazing to me that that people still love this art form. Mm. They love to come and face this way while some other guy faces this way and sings to them. Yeah. That's, that, you know, I don't know how many thousands of years old that is, yeah. but it's still um, very, very meaningful to people. And I think the pandemic showed us how badly people missed it, you know? I mean, even, I think even more than theater or, 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 or musicals or, or whatever, like that, or dance, you know, that singing together as yep. a performative art, yep. I think is, is very, very human and, uh, and valued. Well, that's a huge thing. People, I mean, even the travel aspect of it, people travel to go to concerts. That's like a huge part of travel. Yeah, musical tourism, I call it, right. yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that's getting back, which is great for everybody's health. And, you know, the term music as medicine has been popping up with everybody I talk to. You know, is there a link between music, mental health, or even physical health in your view? Well, I, Matt Byrne, who's one of my favorite singers, I heard Matt on the radio, I don't know, two or three years ago now. And Matt said something that kind of blew my mind, and because I, I never actually heard it put in words before, and and again, this is from my side of the microphone, and he said, he said singing is physically rewarding, right? And I never, it never occurred to me that that was true until he said it, and and he went on to explain that it was, you know, because singing, of course, just like any other thing, you use muscles in parts of your body that you don't use doing that nails hardly, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And so there's, there's, for those of us who do that and flex those muscles as much as we like to do, mm -hmm. you really miss it when you don't get to do it. Right, and right. it's a completely different thing to be, you know, in your basement or whatever, or, uh, you know, doing virtual things in front of a, you know, your own, your own phone yeah. or whatever. Um, it's a completely different thing than standing in front of a group of people with all those expectations and all that kind of, you know, interaction that there's, you know, you, you, your body does things that you, you don't do any other time. Right. And you get a rush of, you know, whatever endorphins or whatever that, that comes with it. But just um, purely as a physical thing, it's rewarding to do. You're right. And the, and I, I would have never thought about that, to be honest with you, until I heard him say it. And then, of course, you know, for your own mental health or for my own mental health, of course, it's, it's not hard to figure out. It's just, it's what I love to do more than anything else. Right. You know, so when you get to do it, you like it. And when you don't get to do it, it hurts. Yeah, right. So, right. and, and, and this, you don't need to think any more about it than that. We're here with singer-songwriter Alan Doyle talking about music, mental health, and his foundation, which is called Dollar a Day. We'll be right back after the break. We're here with singer-songwriter Alan Doyle talking about music, mental health, and his foundation called Dollar a Day. Let's get back to our conversation. I feel like that there is a huge link between a mental health and music, and you started a foundation called Dollar a Day, yeah. which is supporting mental health. Like, what is that foundation? Kind of, why did you decide to focus on well, that? The whole thing, I, I've told the story a few times. Uh, I've just started very organically with, um, me walking the length of Water Street, you know, during a, a month when Great Big C had our studio down where the Boston Pizza is right, right. now. Yeah. And I lived over on the other end of downtown. I just walked to Water Street every day and I met this fellow who was there by Atlantic Place and by the bank uh, looking for money. And I used to give him a buck every day. I gave him a dollar every day. And I learned about his mental health and addiction stuff. And 
in the stressful world of making band records, it became like this little oasis, right. <laughs> this little, uh, you know, respite in, in my day. And I kind of, I missed it. When the band went on the road a month later, I kind of thought about him and how I could give him a dollar a day without being there to give him a dollar a day. And so I started saving a dollar a day. And as simple as that, and I, I, I started giving, a, you know, putting a buck a day or four quarters in my knapsack on the road or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and that year I gave 365 bucks to one of the mental health and addictions facilities here in St. John's. And I did that for two or three years. And then I told Brendan and Andrew about it. And shortly thereafter, we, we started the foundation. So did everybody who give a dollar a day across the country. And, and ideally the, you know, the rising tide would float all the boats for mental health and addictions. And, 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 and that's how it all got rolling. And, and I was excited about it early on because, um, you know, I, I, as a person, you know, with, who's been given a, you know, a great fortunate life and a great fortunate place in the community, if you will, uh, you know, just by the nature of being in a band or songs or whatever. And that I've, I've always not only felt compelled that I should give back because there's not hundreds of us, mm -hmm. you know, who, who, who are in the position that I'm in. Yeah. And also because, well, you know, it feels good. It's good. Yeah. It's good right. to help other people when they've helped you so much, you know, and that's makes the world go around, I always say. And so, I, you know, I worked a little bit with, you know, in, in the cancer world with uh, Daffodil Place and I worked with Ronald McDonald House and I worked with a few other, you know, um, charitable foundations and dozens really, I guess, over the years. But I, the more and more I looked at it, the more and more I saw that if I was going to put my time, my concentrated time into something in the fundraising world or the charity world or the or the health world, um, I became to I came to realize that if if we really want to to make um, a concerted difference, raising the bar for mental health and addictions by three percent would would cure so many other things by twenty five percent. That's right. And that more and more I became aware of uh, how so many other things, from homelessness to um, crime to you know. Uh, general physical poor health were, were all um, stem symptoms of mental health and addictions. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to, I just kind of practically figured that that's where my hours were best donated right. and my efforts were best donated. And so far uh, people are on board, which is lovely. Well, I think that, you know, the stigma is being removed from mental health and I don't think there's more mental health conditions out there. I just feel like more people are able to come forward with it. So the need is probably greater than it's ever been, even though it's probably been there all along. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that we, we especially here, you know, in, you know, in the, where I grew up anyway, that, you know, in my young, the first half of my life, I mean, you know, that you, it was barely discussed, you know, yeah. it was the, the thought that you could help somebody uh, with a mental health issue or an addictions issue was kind of never around the table, you know, I'd, yeah. let alone. And of course, we've come to learn in the second half of my adult life so mm -hmm. far is that it's not, that's not true at all. No, no. You know, no. if people get treatment and, and get therapy and get the stuff they need, same as you break your arm, you can fix it. Right. You know, and uh, and it's so it's been a great, um, uh, you know, journey, I suppose, to feel that open up and have that conversation open up and yeah. have people, you know, talking about, geez, I was just at the gym this morning and someone said, you know, uh, you know, my heart rate's up, but that could just be my anxiety. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and I was, and I thought, like, that's so awesome. Yeah, yeah. That someone could, you know, in a, in a, just a casual conversation, yeah. have that be 
a symptom yeah. that's just the same as having a headache. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and like I I can't imagine how any that that kind of uh, direction is anything but totally beneficial. Well, I, I remember when I started in the world of wellness, everything was physical fitness, physical fitness, physical fitness, and now yeah. it's the whole person, and that's such a big part of it. Like, when you look at what you guys are trying to accomplish, like, what's the goal with the organization? What do you just hope to oh, see? Very simple. Our goal has always been very simple, to help uh, frontline mental health and addictions programs and facilities across the country that are doing, they're already doing awesome stuff. There are, you go, go, and we visited so many of them. And you can't believe the work they're doing, when they're doing it, for how little or nothing they're doing it for. Yeah. You know, that they, you know, there's these people walking around at four o'clock in the morning with, you know, injection kits and, and safe needles. Right. And they're like, and they're, and there's, there's, they're doing these unspeakable things. Yeah. And I was, just, the least we can do is give them a dollar. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, a dollar, look, you should see what they're doing. Like, yeah. you know, like, so let's help them. I mean, and, yeah. and if we all do it, it does two things. First of all, it raises money. And, and a lot of those smaller uh, mental health and addictions facilities like we support, uh, just need more money. They yeah. already got a good idea. They got a good gang. They got a good team. They need just a few more dollars. Yeah. And secondly, if we're all involved, even a little bit every day, yeah. the, the conversation that we spoke of gets opened more quickly and more readily. And right. and and that is so uh, you know unique, I think, to mental health and addictions that the conversation about it is actually part of the cure. It is. Like yeah. I wish I could say that if you and I stood here, you know, and open up you know, that the, the community dialogue about stage four cancer, yeah. that that would help stage four cancer. I really yeah, wish yeah. that it would, but it, you know, I, I, to, my, to my bachelor of arts knowledge, that's not, that's not part of it. <laughs> uh, albeit I'm yeah. sure mentally helpful, but yeah. for mental health and addictions, just the conversation of it is such a big part of the steps towards fixing it. Yeah, right, right, right. That's, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the thing we're seeing through a lot of people is that, you know, I guess, I guess the question I'd leave you with, like, before we get off the topic of mental health is what, what would you tell somebody who's still kind of afraid with that stigma, you know, of coming forward and getting help? Because you must have seen lots of different organizations that help yeah. people that are in that sort of stage of hesitancy, like they're afraid there's something, you know, people are going to be judged by it, but I don't think yeah. that's the case anymore. No, and I think that's the statement that people need to hear first is, like, um, first of all, if you feel nervous about coming forward with it, uh, that's probably for good reason. Yeah. Because somewhere in your past or in all of our past, there was a time when we, we, we've, we've been told that we shouldn't talk about it. Mm. And so don't feel bad for feeling bad. That's how I like to start it. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, right. so, um, and don't feel nervous about being nervous, mm. you know? And so the next thing I always try to tell people is we are, here are 10 different examples of where it used to be difficult to talk about this stuff, yeah. that, that these people are showing us how to do it and it's easier. Yeah. And sometimes it takes just what we're doing right now yeah. for someone like me or you to go, you know, how is your arm? How is your anxiety? How is your leg? <laughs> there are three things that you need to work well. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, yeah. and, and so, you know, I, I, I always encourage people to like, first of all, if you're, if you're reluctant to talk about it, that's totally okay. And there's a good reason you're reluctant to talk about it because yeah. you've probably been programmed to not talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so, and the, but then also here's some avenues where that makes it a little easier to talk about it, and yeah. a little more. And, and, you know, and I think like to think just because again, I've been given a fortunate life with a microphone in my face yeah. that people listen to me. Yeah. Uh, 
more off just because my it's louder. <laughs> hey, it's good yeah. use of your voice too. It's good to use my voice that, that I can help with that. So that's what I'm doing. Well, let's switch to, to the other reason you use your voice, not just for advocacy work, but of course for singing. Yeah. Uh, anybody out there who wants to get into music? Like a lot of people are hesitant about music, especially here in a place like Newfoundland where everybody's good. What do you tell people about, you know, just giving it a shot? Oh, there, I, another wise person once said to me, if you love the work, then that's all you need to know. Yeah, it's all you need. If you love the work, the work will save you and the work will always be enough. And that's not only one of the reasons to get into the music business, it's the only reason to ever get into the arts at all, yeah. the performing arts. Do you love it? Mm -hmm. uh, that is probably the one and only question you ever need to ask and answer. Good. Do you love it? Yeah. That's all. And if you love it and if you um, and I think that's true for everything from a painter to a dancer to a, you know, if you love the work, then, you know, sm more often than you can possibly imagine, you can make that pay for you in some fashion or another. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I, I got a question. What if you love it and like me and, uh, and I, I can't play music very yeah. good. I can't sing very yeah. well and I can't really, yeah. <laughs> I don't have any rhythm. Yeah. What's, what do I do? Well, I love playing goalie too. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I don't see me getting a call from the growlers. But yeah. no, but yeah. I, I would argue, you know, I mean, for me, for me, that I would suspect that you're probably an excellent example yeah. of somebody who had a good look and a sensible look at what they loved the most. Mm -hmm. Uh, in their life and pursued it. Yeah, I suspect. I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't heard your shower singing yet, but I bet any money, I bet you're way better at this, you know, health and wellness stuff <laughs> than you are at anything else. Yeah. And I, I suspect it's because you love it the most, and and that's a beautiful thing. It's, it's and again, and true to the, the whole example, it's you, you've made it uh, a way to be how you you know pay the heat bill, you know, and and more often than not, that's that is. Yeah, I'd love to say that's always the case. But of course, everyone has you know a, a different deck of cards than everyone else. But uh, more often than you would suspect, mm -hmm. and more often, it's way. I like to tell people it's way more likely than you can possibly imagine that if you really truly pursue the thing that you love, that you'll figure out a way to make it be your living. Yeah. Right. Well. That's great. Well, I really appreciate taking the time today. I know you're getting on the road and traveling and getting back to the real world that? of music. We used to do that. We used to do that thing. Remember I that? Know. I used to love that. That was great to see you, man. Thanks, man. Thanks, Thanks for this. So appreciate it. Love the day. Thank you. Thank you to my guests for joining me today. We're lucky to live in a province where music is woven into the fabric of everyday life. I hope this encourages you to sing in the shower, dust off your guitar, or tap your foot to your favorite tune. Music is medicine, and it's medicine that surrounds us every day. If you want to learn more about the Dollar a Day Foundation, you can find them at www.adollaraday.ca. They're doing great work for mental health advocacy, so I encourage you to check them out. Also, Alan's latest album was released in May of this year, and he's back on tour. Be sure to check out Back to the Harbor if you need some new tunes for your playlist. Well, thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.